I'll start uh, now. Uh, oh, Brother, Not Another Podcast is an official Apple podcast presented by the Westport Library and the Quick Center for the Arts with me, Mix Burroughs. And I'm Trace Burroughs. And today we have um, a fascinating show because we have uh, Jenny and Jean Abel on. Uh, the daughter and uh, wife of Alan Abel, who was at a very unique place in pop culture. He, he was a, a prankster for over 50 years. He did all kinds of stunts, which we'll get taught, or pranks, pranks, hoaxes that we'll discuss, and was on, you know, on many major talk shows uh, and posturing as different people. And his stuff always had like a, a humorous edge to it. And as a side thing, Migs and I both have had involvements with Alan um, back, uh, I don't know, if it was the 70s with me. Um, and Migs had his own involvement. We'll, dis we'll discuss that. But yeah, and he was also an author. And, uh, you know, I, interesting, I had just seen a, um, I went to a live thing, well, it was before COVID, I guess, just so it was last year, with Mo, Mo Rocca, you know, the comedian Mo Rocca, who's, who's, who has written a book called Mo Obituaries which he, he uh, has written about weird obituaries uh, that are overlooked and interesting people that are not often. And he mentioned in his, um, and in his talk, he mentioned Alan as being the only person, and I, and I guess this part leads into the question, were you guys involved in any way? He's the, apparently the only person who's ever, the only living person who's ever had an obituary in the New York Times. Is that true? I thought that somebody else faked their death. Mom, didn't somebody else so that dad, we realized after the fact that maybe dad wasn't the only person who we did heard that? that? We heard that, but I, I, I don't know who it was. Well, Mo, um, Rock, Mo Rocca credits Alan, so we leave it. <laughs> well, everybody seems to, yes. In fact, he would have been so happy to have realized that he got almost an entire page in the obituary uh, section of the New York Times. Um, I mean, if you got to go, you got to go big, right? Yeah. So my, well, you can talk about this. I'm butting in and talking about my involvement. But like, I was a drummer and Alan was a drummer too, right? Uh, orchestral yeah. drumming. So I was breaking, first of all, let me say that you're, uh, that Alan really inspired me as a young person. I really loved the great imposter thing and the, and and putting something over on the media, it stuck with me my whole life. I did my own kind of stunts different than his, but um, so I was a drummer and, and, and the first meeting with Alan was that he invented this pedal for bass drums that went in different directions. And he after I broke a Guinness book record for drumming, he said, well, why don't you tell me if this is any good? So he came over to the house and I tested out his pedal for a couple of weeks. Um, after that, he, Asked, I was actually did a stunt with him, but I don't remember what it was. It was for an insurance company in Westchester where I picketed the insurance company. I forget what the picket says. I was with a bunch of other people and we walked in circles and, you know, I think he had a megaphone or something. So that, I don't know what became of that. So soon after that, he asked me if I would go on the Phil Donahue show and act as a terrorist. <laughs> and and sort of like you know um, power my way onto the show. And though I loved you know getting would love to getting the attention, I said I'm not going to do that because you know people might think I'm a real terrorist and some guy with a gun might you know shoot try to shoot me. You know. Yeah. So well, I, actually, what 
he ended up doing was having people just faint when when Phil held out the microphone to people in the audience as he he did every no. day. He was just he was just coming to New York from Chicago, so uh, this was like his. Um, I, it was a surprise all around. He didn't know about it, of course. No, yeah. And Alan Alan didn't know. And we used to do his show when he was in Akron. He had a little desk and a radio show, and we would go up and at Christmas time, we would go up to see him and do his show. And uh, so it's not, not like we didn't know him, but uh, he didn't know of the prank that Alan was pulling, but it gave him incredible uh, publicity. But everyone fainted. That's what they ended up doing. <laughs> and, and they're all Alan's people, you know. So when, the he, when these people fainted, let they, they were going to ask questions or the mic was coming up to them and then well, they fainted. How did, what, how did Donna, you react to that? I mean, did they call well, like, uh, little by little, he was uh, one person. They sort of excused it. Well, you know, it must be the studio's hot. I think it was January, <laughs> you know, people come in from the cold and then a second person fainted. And after a while you could see he was, he was, he was just, you know, beside himself. Now they're worrying about Lou Gehrig's disease or something in the filters and the air conditioning. I know they're looking around for something to, to blame it on. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, they took took everyone out of the studio, and he was left with, you know, a microphone. <laughs> it, it, it got him great publicity. It launched his show. And um, Alan also knew his producer very well. So, it, it you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's just one of those things where – you know, it's kind of a prank and kind of uh, revenge yeah. and a kind of a lot of different things. Well, well, the great part of it is, you know, which holds true today more than ever, is the gullibility. First of all, people's gullibility and the media, how much we depend on the media for. And he tests, he was constantly testing the veracity of the media, like how the research and, the you know, and it was it was just such well, a great lesson with comedy and, and social commentary. Yeah. We thought we always thought we were pulling pranks. We were doing satire. We were making fun of things. The whole campaign to clothe naked animals oh, was yeah. kind of against censorship. Um, he had sent this story off. Well, it all started when he was traveling in Texas, I believe, and and some uh, some cows had crossed the road and had stopped traffic on both directions of the highway, and uh, and they started making love, you know, as cows do or whatever <laughs> yeah. they are. <laughs> and uh, and so people's reaction to it kind of stirred him to, to to do something. So he wrote a little story about an organization that wanted to clothe naked animals. Those naked animals are uh, you know a distraction for people driving along. They're hanging their heads in shame. And you know he went on and on about it. And he sent it to I think it was a Saturday Evening Post or something. Uh, and he got this very. Um, a stiff letter back from some lady, obviously very incensed at the idea. And uh, that just provoked him further. Now he started printing up leaflets and leaving him in, in motels. He was traveling on the road doing his drum act at the time in the school system. And um, and it went on for years. And finally, he teamed up with Buck Henry, who was a friend. And Buck wasn't doing anything much that at that point in life. He was just getting out of college and starting his life uh, in a theater. And so Buck was a perfect uh, character for this G. Clifford Prout. Oh, yeah. G. Clifford Prout was the head of, uh, and he had inherited the $400,000 or something, supposedly, and that was the story. And so one thing begets another, Buck was perfect, deadpan comedy, 
and he was great a great improviser. So he went on a couple TV shows, one thing begot another and another and another. And suddenly we were getting mail, uh, Alan's answering service, bags of it, and it became a national thing. I mean, it's hard to imagine, frankly, that such an idea would take off like that. You know, I saw it. But, I heard as a, I saw it on the. I think it was the Tonight Show. Tonight Show. Yeah, I saw before, it before I knew who he was. I mean, I yeah. saw it and said, "This is this is Thank crazy." Who? I know it's crazy, but <laughs> I think I think in those times. Uh, you couldn't do it now. I yeah. don't think you could do it now. It's different now. And also, there's so many uh, gotcha kind of people around who, you know, trace you back. They can follow you, find out your mother's yeah. name, your father's name, where you're born, what your blood type. You know, they can they can find every everything and anything about you that in a minute uh, by computer. In those days, that those things did not exist. So it takes several days before if he'd pull a prank, maybe, and uh, like he did with the um, uh, the um, oh the big um, big win on the, the scratch off cards and you know he actually uh, could take like three days before it would take three days before somebody would catch him you know and then he would have more news when he would confess you know oh, yeah. so he uh, it was a it was the way he uh, he functioned he could get people uh, in the span of a subway ride. To pull some prank to be the central character in something like Idi Amin. You know, the wedding uh, at the Plaza Hotel. I remember that. That's it. Yeah. And um, and he found this African-American fellow. His name was uh, Fitzgerald Scott. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I, the name itself is fascinating. Um, and in the, he found him on the subway because he was thinking at the time, what can I do? Uh, to make fun of this. Apparently, one of his friends had complained that Idi Amin was sending a, a plane to the States to get, you know, favorite foods of his that are American foods, and he could only get them here, you know, and take them back to Uganda, you know. And uh, so it was just a, a prank. In this case, so um, he actually confessed. It was supposed to be centrally about his uh, Idi Amin coming to America to marry a, a nice Jewish girl from Long Island. That was the main story. Mm. And uh, in the course of all this, um, they actually closed Tiffany's down because they called over to Tiffany's and said, the, uh, the ruler wants to uh, come visit and looks to <laughs> see if he wants to buy a gift for his new bride. <laughs> and they actually closed the store. Oh my and <laughs> so that they could come. And meanwhile, um, Alan has told this guy, now, don't talk. You don't talk. You don't speak English. But he would pick things up and drop them, you know, jewelry, you know, <laughs> Tiffany and, and stuff like this. And I mean, it's just amazing how much they got away with. You know? yeah. And um, so at the end of it, however, uh, now, meantime, Washington had sent uh, some representative there to tell tell them back in Washington what was happening at, at the plaza. You know, something is going on there. And is Edie, I mean, really in the country? And, and as I say, in those days, they didn't have the means of communication to find out quickly. Oh, yeah. And um, and nobody knew what Edie, I mean, looked like. That was another good thing. Oh, yeah. He's smart. I, I'm just curious. About, well, I wanted to ask Jenny briefly about We both were curious about the documentary. And then first, I, I'm just curious that briefly, you know, we all grow up and we just assume our, our parent, we, we don't know from many other parents. We just grow up with our parents. I mean, they are 
parents could be serial killers or they could be comedians or they could be yeah. from Jenny's point of view. When did you catch on that your father was so uh, interesting and different? I think, Migs, you were about to say deranged. <laughs> that was not on my tongue, I swear. Okay. Well, you know, I think it was a cumulative experience, um, you know, because the we the weirdness was normal to me, as you said. Um, luckily, my parents weren't serial killers, but um, don't take that out of context. Ours, ours were. Oh, okay. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. But I, I was also going to say, you know, I just before I... I um, I uh, go further. I just wanted to go back one, one, one moment. Hmm. You know, Trace said, well, I don't know. I was like picketing in Westchester. And then I was like, uh, you know, asked to go on a TV show and be a terrorist. Like that's, that's so typical of my dad. Like he would just like get on the phone and call you and say, Hey, I need you uh, to uh, be here at, you know, such and such an hour and wear this and don't talk, you know? So, and then, you know, you'd get like roped into his, his schemes. And that's kind of what my childhood was like. Like I was always like, oh. just brought along for the ride. Like here, Jennifer, pass these out here, hold this sign. Okay. Cry in front of the zoning. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just yeah. wanted to go back a bit to point out that yeah. it was a very similar experience growing up and it was incredible. I, I like, I tell people like, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't take it back for anything. I, I, I would, I know how, and it just, you know, it was uh, a constant adventure. Mm. There was never a dull moment in the Able House. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it was as fun for you as it was for the rest of us. But, um, and what is this documentary? Is it out? It has been out and it took a long time to put together, right? Yeah. So my mom alluded to it being only eight years, but I think it was um, the, the seed of the idea started back when I was in college and I started collecting material. So as I said, it was a, you know, a, a learning um, that grew to appreciate the layers of my dad's humor that I didn't quite get as a young person. But, at, you know, when I was in college, I started to, to grasp a bit more. And I realized that um, these materials were really precious and there were so many of them. Um, and, I started reviewing material and realizing that this was worthy of documentation, like for the public, not just my own purposes. Um, but yeah, we, my my dad introduced me to this uh, this this really uh, really. Uh, I I'm sorry, I I have to go back a bit, but um, I was in LA, and um, I was about to break up with my boyfriend and my, I was having some weird, like, I don't know, it was a, it was a rough time. And uh, my dad called me and said that I got to meet this guy. He just met this cameraman in New York. And I, that man is now my husband. Oh. <laughs> so that was like 20 years ago. Um, but that, that was Jeff Hockett and Jeff came in, he had a news background and he's, he's super creative and he's the one who helped like, seal the deal on that documentary. I think I would have just been buried in the hundreds of hours of material and the thousands of pieces of paper and photographs were it not for Jeff to come in and really use his keen sense of editing. Um, so we, we premiered at Slamdance in 2005 and we won the grand jury prize and then it just took off from there. So, but it still is alive. Mm. Uh, like we created something that lives on even despite 
you know, the fact that's been so long because people keep rediscovering the Abel's. Right. Yeah. There's not how many. I mean, he's one of a kind. I, I don't know if in my lifetime anyone like him that did this kind of thing. Can can I can I ask? This is the one thing I helped him with. Well, he helped me, and I helped him. The uh, he again, like you said, it was spur of the moment. He, I don't know how he. I, I guess I met him through Trace somehow, or he knew of me. I don't know. And uh, he calls up one day and goes, I, "I'm giving a talk in Hyde Park, London, in a few days." about uh, that I have found an alien, uh, the body of an alien, and could you make me an alien head, the head of an alien that I can hold up, you know, like uh, like on a stick, you know, in my lecture in Hyde Park. So I scram, I'm not a sculptor or anything, but I, I made something and I never took a picture of it and I gave it to him or shipped it to London and I think he did send me a picture of it that I didn't been able to find. Does that vague sound familiar at all? <laughs> Probably not. Mom, do you have the alien head I, in a box? I don't. <laughs> I, don't I, I do have the uh, Loch Ness monster, though. Oh, I, I didn't do that. No, uh, that's, a, that's there was, a prank. There was, that was another prank and, of sorts. And, and the one he helped me with, I'll just, and that'll be the it for me in terms of my, was that uh, I, I had a TV, a cable TV show, and I, I interviewed Rush Limbaugh in 1988. He was just breaking through, and he wasn't the vicious, you know, vile person he ended up being, but uh, he was a conservative, but he he was funny. Anyway, I, and we pre-recorded it, but I wanted to pretend there was callers. I mean, Rush Limbaugh didn't know the difference. So I think even Trace, did you call in once? I think I had- Not after that show, but other shows. Oh, so I had had friends call in and I asked Alan this big favor. I said, could you call in? I don't care what you, just make up your own thing. So we're in the middle of the, the Rush Limbaugh interview and the director gives me the signal that somebody's calling in. And, and Alan, as doctors, whatever he was, uh, says that he has a, he has a solution to hunger in America, eating. Wait just a second. Wait just a second. Doctor, are you serious about this? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, you actually round up dogs and cats for people in your society to eat? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, these are not animals that are used for vivisection. They're not being tortured such as they do in the laboratories, you know, for various commercial products. What kind of doctor, what kind of doctor <laughs> are you? Are you I'm that? an anthropologist. You, pardon? An anthropologist. Anthropologist. Totally straight, and Rush Limbaugh bought it, hook, line, and sinker. He's saying, excuse yeah. me, doctor, are you serious? <laughs> so great. Well, I think my dad was obsessed with animals. Like, I feel like he did a lot of animal pranks. Yeah. And, and, and like the plastic surgery for pets, where you make your oh. pet look like your owner. Oh, oh no. yeah. parents didn't know about that. How about the dog translator? Did you the pet translator? Do you remember that one where he? Yes. You bark. Yeah. The dog would bark into a machine, and then this this uh -huh. printout would come out telling you what the dog said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like this stuff is like it's hilarious, and you see it in some form or another in in, in current media. Like oh, I yeah. feel like his ideas are now peppered around, and I see things that I'm like, hey, my dad thought of that, like you know, 40 years ago, yeah. and now it's like you know replaying itself so i i actually that's that's how uh, my my dad uh he he would go on as whatever character and he wouldn't break character until the plug was pulled so like mm -hmm. it often took you know sometimes 
it, it like was a realization that maybe a crew member had. And that's what happened when he went on as the plastic surgeon for pets that somebody said, Oh, that's that Alan Abel dude, uh -huh. get him out of here. <laughs> so. Did he ever, did anyone ever take him to court? I mean, actually get inside of a courtroom, like the defendant. Mm -hmm. Mom, did anybody sue dad aside from all of the uh, bank stuff? No. Uh, well, arrested, no. <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he was grilled by, you know, with a Donahue prank, for instance. He was grilled by lawyers, you know, like crazy. Because uh, they all thought he had some sort of motive of some sort, some dark motive, you know. And uh, they couldn't figure out why he would do it just to do it for the hell of it. You know, it didn't make sense to them. Uh, so he was often accused of, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where we were always kind of battling somebody or other. It wasn't each other. We never had fights with each other, but there was like the New York times wouldn't run our ad when we had our movie is a sex after death, um, mm -hmm. playing in New York and they wouldn't run the title. Is there sex after death? <laughs> I guess they thought it was about necrophilia or something. And uh -oh. all of a sudden they... Okay. I don't know. In any case, I like how Trace is like, oh, yeah, 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 I get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's we're the... always doing battle. He was always in court, uh, you know. Uh, uh, he, he got rather good at it. He kind of enjoyed it, frankly, um, because it was a big acting thing, you know, to go to court. And, and um, I mean, I, you know, the... Uh, like the poster for Is It Sex After Death? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but... Uh, Mommy, Mom, I'm censoring you. Nope. Well, we can say anything here. I know, but I was going to go back. I'm interrupting my mom. I'm taking a commercial break here. <laughs> I want to know um, what the movie's about. <laughs> okay, good. And you shan't. You shall not know ever. No, no. Um, no, I was going to say that... Um, he basically, wait, what were we, I just interrupted and then I lost my thought. Oh no. Um, there was something else that you guys were just talking about. The New York Times banned, banned the ad. Yeah, yeah, there was something else. Oh, well, I guess you'll have to hear my mom talk about the poster art. Back to the regular yeah. programming. Go ahead, mom. <laughs> well, it featured uh, a male member. Oh, right. And. Uh, but in disguise, in costume. Yeah, that's I do remember oh. that. Yes. Jeez. <laughs> okay. So, Gene, I'm curious. Gene, were you ever enlisted to be, uh, uh, you know, to pose as somebody uh, to be, you know, a fictional character? Well, I I was Yetta Bronstein. Um, oh, Yetta Bronstein. I ran for president in '64 and '68. How many votes did you I get? Also was, <laughs> I ran for for. Um, Mayor of New York, and I ran for Parliament in New York in uh, England. I, I, I was busy in that time just running for things, <laughs> but I did it as um, uh, with a Jewish accent and um, kind of. Uh, well, we used his mother's picture, who seemed more appropriate because there was no yet a Bronstein. Mm. But um, I pretended like there was. I did all kinds of radio interviews and uh, phone interviews. And oddly enough, the hosts always seemed to play along with it. I had, um, what are what's the name? Uh, uh, Brothers was their last name. Joyce Brothers, I Joyce think. Joyce Brothers, Dr. Joyce Brothers. Yeah, right. And uh, all kinds of uh, celebrity radio folk interviewed me, and they all kind of kept the secret, uh, which was interesting. Um, 
But, um, yeah, I, you know, it's it's mostly I was kind of behind the scenes and supportive. But I was writing a lot of the stuff and, and coming up with ideas and that sort of thing. But that was my main character. And I picketed a lot, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that did was ever, a lot. Did he ever have a grand, a grand scheme that never he was never able to pull off or never got to? I mean, was there any, you know, his Well, dream? the Loch Ness Monster was one. He did try to land a guy from Mars, but that kind of fizzled out. Um, we should have had uh, Migs's uh, alien head. Well, maybe that's... Yeah, maybe yeah, that was I, I don't know, it didn't kind of come off. But anyway, um, well, he had a show that he wanted to get produced. Uh, Will you be my baby daddy? Uh, <laughs> and he came close. He had someone in England interested in doing the show. Um, but he was always he was always writing. We have legal pads full of uh, proposed uh, ideas and, and what it would cost to do them. And, you know, he plotted out all these things that did a lot of that sort of thing. Did he pitch and a lot of TV shows? He, Sorry? Did he what? Go ahead. Did he pitch a lot of ideas for TV shows to, you know. Yes, yes. Um, and, and he played characters, you know, like the uh, the eternal uh, beggar. He was always... Um, Omar the beggar, right? Omar, yes. The school Omar for beggars. And, the school for beggars. Yeah. Yes. And, and along the line, he did have ideas that were, I mean, they were real. Um and sincere. Uh, way back in the 50s, he thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice if when you're riding on a plane, you had something to listen to, hmm. some entertainment? Really? And hmm. so he came up, he tried, he, he called every airline and tried to talk him into having some sort of like a radio show, having, you know, some some sort of entertainment, something going on. So hmm. He did talk one small airline, I think, down in Texas um, to try out some sort of entertainment in the back of the plane that had like a little area where somebody could go back and they had like a 16 millimeter uh, projector, <laughs> you can imagine. And, um, but their fear was at the time that it would interfere with the fl flying of the plane, mm. you know, which is a real uh, problem, obviously, if, if it were to appear, uh, if interfere somehow. But ultimately some guy came along and said, uh, if you're giving up on this idea, you mind if I try it? So oh. he did, and he actually succeeded. I guess he so. Actually succeeded. Yeah. Uh, that, I don't recall his name. That's kind of the funny thing, too, that my dad was like ahead of his time, but to a detriment, you know, mm. where it, those people weren't ready to receive too, his wild pitches. Yeah, too far. I, mm. Right, right. Well, yeah. he, had, he had the idea for uh, collapsible drums since he had a Lug drums around all of his young life. Um, that. Yeah. yeah. But somebody already had invented it. And uh, the uh, manufacturer approaches approach said, you know, we've already got it. It's in the safe. We don't want it. You know, so mm. nobody wanted to change anything. He represented a fellow who had uh, created a baby carriage that remained level when it went down the stairs or over mm. a curb. And um, in those days, there was just a, you know, everybody had the same baby carriage. It was a whole different kind of thing than now. You can carry a child on your shoulder, on your stomach. You know, you have all kinds of other uh, possibilities. But uh, nobody wanted to change their uh, way of doing things. You know, they, they, you know, so he was unfortunately unsuccessful in any of those efforts. I wanted to say, yeah. I'm sorry, Migs, go ahead. Okay. I just, there were a couple things that you guys touched upon. I wanted to go back and make sure we covered. Right. 
Uh, Trace, uh, Yetta Bronstein lost by a landslide. <laughs> did she get any votes? I mean, I think, that, Mom, did you get any votes? I might have. I met Dave, uh, David Brinkley uh, talked about it, uh, mm -hmm. and I think there were some. Don't know how many. Hmm. There were some write-in votes, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, but I, I got an awful lot of publicity. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, like the idea of a mother in the White House. I mean, you guys, again, you were ahead of your time, like, I mean, and it's timeless. Absolutely. So, yeah. and, and and then I was also going to say that um, I did remember when my mom was, uh, when I, my, I took my commercial break, uh, mm -hmm. Donald Trump was taken to court by Alan Abel. <gasps> oh, really? Really? Or what? I forget what year it was. Uh, I'll look it up. I can send you a copy of the judgment. Uh, it was uh, because my dad was selling books outside of Trump Tower, and the cops told him to get off, get off the sidewalk. And my dad insisted that he had the right to do what he was doing, and it ensued, and uh, it, it went to court. And my dad, like, basically. Uh, fought it until the end of his life he oh. still had that judgment and he displayed it proudly i think newsweek did a story about it if you guys do an alan abel search for donald trump alan abel plus donald trump oh, it will come up I, I think, fine or anything no. i'm sorry say it again trace you have to pay a fine do you get a ticket or i don't know what, what do you get yeah, what's the big penalty what was the penalty out of that <laughs> You know, I don't, Mom. Do you remember what the deal was? I know that they were. It, it, Dad definitely argued with the cops, and then what happened? Well, the, the uh, retired cop actually uh, supported Alan, and the people trying to get him away were, uh, you know, Trump's guys, his goony guys, you know, mm -hmm. who were saying to him, you know, you get out of here, or we'll take you out, you know. Yes. Um, so, uh, so Alan went to court. He went to court in Atlantic City. And he asked the, the judge, um, how was it, how did he go right now? I'm trying to remember the order of events. Um, but he was going to sue um, Trump for the, uh, 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 sue against the, the, it wasn't the Taj Mahal, was it? It was the uh, casino that they just took down. Mm. Anyway, he would, the idea being he would take his $900 he was awarded and give uh, Trump back the rest of the money. But I, you know, it was. It, was uh, it also made news. You know, making news was part of the thing. After a while, he decided it was not worth it to to actually fight him about it. It's more fun to talk about it. Yeah, there uh, there was also a don a dollar for Donald campaign that Dad had, where he <laughs> had everybody send a dollar to Donald Trump. Oh, perfect. Um, so I think my dad really enjoyed embarrassing people into submission. I think that was kind of like his mantra. Wouldn't you agree, Mom? He liked to do do that to yeah. people. Well, yeah. He just like the level well, to bring them down. You know, people that are on their high horse or their ivory tower. He definitely liked to bring them down to to ground level. I think. Yeah, but well, it, then go ahead, Mom. Yeah, what? Well, I mean, he didn't do it just everyday people. He he did it to people who deserved it. You know, yeah. <laughs> we figured. Yeah, like like for example, and 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 uh, I mean, I think that this is something that. I never know how to play this because um, it's like upsetting. Like I, I really like any mention of the Ku Klux Klan is upsetting, but my dad embarrassed David Duke <laughs> to, to make a point that, you know, you know, um, I think it was something like 
mom, you might be able to tell the story better. But dad created this false orchestra or the facade of an orchestra and invited David Duke to conduct it with the premise being he wanted to a better, like kinder, gentler image of the clan. Oh. Um, and then they, they, he staged like a children's concert. It was something so outlandish and ridiculous, but David Duke played right into my dad's he did. hand. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Did, do either of you guys have, we have a few minutes left, but did either of you guys carried on any of the tradition, done your own independent kind of hoaxes or stunts in any bigger little way? Or have the urge to? You have the urge, you know. Mommy. Or to perpetuate. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy, tell us. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, no, like our, our lives. Our lives were pretty simple and normal in many other ways, you know. I mean, it, it wasn't like every day we were looking for some prank to pull. Um, but um, I always thought we were rather normal. Uh, and uh, others may, may differ, but um, I, know I, I was, don't think we have it on our own. I was going to say that um, the torch is being carried by my son. I have a little Alan Abel. Okay. Uh, <laughs> My son has a little Alan Abel in him, and uh, he actually, he he's obsessed. There's a book called Prankalopedia, and my dad happens to be in it, but it's a children's book, oh. and they have a page dedicated to Alan and Jean's Society for Indecency to Naked Animals prank, and there's like a dressed dog, oh. and Jalen tells everybody he knows, my son tells everyone he knows that Alan Abel is a famous prankster, and he wants to, you know, yeah always remember him in that way which is which is really beautiful so it, it does co come full circle yeah maybe we'll be seeing some other pranks in the future yeah oh, that's a great story to end on i think we have to wait till things settle down more at this stage of the game when you know for the past four years we've been hearing so many lies that I don't want to be mixed in that. Oh, that right. Thing. I had, yeah, I had those. Uh, yeah. Well, we, uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I didn't want to connect, make a connection. Yeah. I wasn't going to, I thought this, but now I'm going to say it since you already brought up Trump's name. The thing is that he was putting, showing that there's fake news, you know, sort of the first fake news, but it wasn't, it's not Trump's fake news. It was. No, it wasn't it was, malicious. It was, so I didn't even want to put those two na names. No, I, I thought, that, well, you know, maybe his intentions weren't weren't that socially, you know, he wasn't thinking that way, but he did test the media to, and, you know, Howard Stern does it too. I mean, he does things and, and, and the media, you know, reports things that were just jokes on his show. And it's like, really, it, it's sort of as a, a, a wagging a finger at the media saying, you know, check your facts, people. You know, mm -hmm. just don't don't put out everything that you every press release you get, you know, do a little fact checking. I mean, I'm glad they didn't in terms of Alan's uh, stunts because he entertained us so, so well. But. Well, when you get to a certain point, when you've gotten a certain amount of notoriety, uh, reporters are sent out to get the story, no matter what it is. Uh, when we were doing the Sinna thing, Alan promised some sort of protest uh, at some sort of horse race or something out in California. And reporters showed up to cover it, and they were upset when it wasn't happening. <laughs> and they were asking him, you know, come on, we got, we got, we have to write a story, you know. So, at a certain point in time, the reporters want something from you, and uh, I mean, they may, they may uh, complain about you later on, but uh, at a, of the moment, they they need you. So. Sure. Um, 
it's bizarre how these things go. We we when we were in California, Alan was then writing uh, for an ad agency, and um, he uh, he approached the uh, well. We actually were in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, because he had he had made a big. Uh, a big stew about the fact that, you know, horses were roaming around the countryside and so forth. And so they actually had headlines for three days in a row about Sina. That's what we call the organization, Society for Indecency, the Naked Animals, Sina. And uh, they were playing along, you know. Um, it, it was it, Sometimes you find that you do have that kind of relationship going. He did have friends who were reporters, oh. too. I was so, going to say it was a symbiotic relationship. Right. Yeah. It was all one way. Yeah. Right. And and then, but also I, I like MIG's interpretation of it. You know, maybe it is a test for journalists to well, properly vet their stories. Now what they're saying to us is that we did uh, performance art, mm-hmm. which we, we didn't know what the hell that was then. You know, what do you mean? Performance art? Uh, it sounds far too fancy for us uh we were just making fun yeah and, and then people kind of got i came along with us some people were in with us and and um some people you know took it seriously and got very offended alan also did a radio show for uh hugh hefner uh the playboy club back in 64 and uh hugh hefner had seen him on we were uh we were actually Taken to Pittsburgh uh, at Christmas time, we were on our way from San Francisco to Cincinnati, and because of a storm, we ended up getting off at Pittsburgh. And um, for some reason or another, uh, Alan he could go on the air immediately. All he had to do was call up and say, "I'm I'm representing Cinna and blah blah blah," <laughs> and they invited him right on the show. And it happened time and again. So anyway, Alan went on the show. And um, and uh, there were a couple other great people on there too. Um, but anyway, he apparently very much impressed Hugh Hefner, so uh, he invited him to do this uh, host this show on in his in his uh, new. Um, it was really um, a restaurant, a club they called it. You had to have a key to get in. The bunny, the rest, the waitresses wore little yeah. cotton tails, bunny ears, and so forth. That was new at the time, and uh, and so we did this show for a time, and uh, people, all the comedians who were coming through Chicago would would visit the show. Rod Serling, Jane Fonda, you know, all the celebrities of the moment um, came through, and uh, you know, he, it was a kind of call-in show, and mm-hmm. so we would we would come up with ideas every night for a theme for the for the night, and uh, one night it was like. Let's change the flag from red, white, and blue to blue, white, and red. <laughs> and um, and pe- it's a call-in show, so people would call in, and some would be very incensed. Mm-hmm. And we we would be you know snickering, you know, like don't they get it? And other people, of course, would play along, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, so he did a lot of things in time, and really a lot of things. Yeah, um, I was going to jump in. Mm-hmm. Mom. Also, compose, composer. Oh yeah, my dad was a musician. No, I was gonna say yeah. I was when when Trace was talking about the double bass drum pedal or whatever um, 
my dad had you try out, I wondered if you were talking about the other Alan Abel, because there's another Alan Abel who's a drummer, and okay. but he just passed away recently. No, um, Alan, Alan actually came to my house. So it was definitely my dad and not an imposter yeah. or another Alan. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know there was another Alan. There's no, another... actually your dad. I must have seen pictures of him or, or I knew it was him, you know, the same Alan Abel I knew. Yeah, he came and he brought over the pedal and that was that. And he was in the Westport marching. But the, I mean, the most normal thing I ever saw him do was, you know, in the Memorial Day parade, he'd be in the Westport marching band or whatever it was called. Uh, and he, you know, was yeah. in, in kind of uniform with the drum. He, he was good. Yeah, he was, a, he was really good. I mean, he was an excellent drummer. And a lot of people don't know that. And yeah, he has these amazing musical uh, pieces that I really want to put out there because I think more people would appreciate his he composed music like what orchestral music or what kind of music? It was like novelty music. Um, I don't know how to describe it like uh, it, it's, it. it's all the music in the documentary. No. My dad, my dad composed. So before we sign, where can people, can they find the documentary on YouTube or anywhere else? Where can they? Well, you know, the New York Times piece, uh, the obituary on my dad, it actually links to the 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 movie, the documentary on uh, our Vimeo page. So oh, it's, okay. a, it's a Vimeo link, but you can find it on either alanable.com or ablerazescane.com on the documentary section. Oh, good. Um, but yeah, I just uh, I just wanted to thank you guys because it means a lot to my mom and I that people are still thinking about my dad. I, I think Alan Abel is, uh, he was not necessarily a household name, but the fact that a lot of people knew him, knew his pranks, it, it just, it's really, it, it just, it's really touching to my mom and I that yeah. his story lives on in this way. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Mom, do you want to say anything? I think that these um, guys have a limit. Uh, well, just thank you very much. We enjoyed this time with you. And um, good luck with the uh, podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing the stories. You're welcome. Do you want Yetta Bronstein to sing away on her way out? Oh, that was, please. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> okay. You want a little Yetta Bronstein now? Yeah. Uh, there'll be a change, there'll be a change, there'll be a change in government when Yetta gets to be the first lady and also the president. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. <laughs>